Sound Pages is a literary series featuring resident artists in the Jack Straw Writers Program. Your grief is not a riptide. It will not pull you under. Your grief is not a stepchild. You may not forget her. This program features the work of 2017 writer Afroz Fatima Ahmed. Curator Jordan Amani Keith spoke with her in an interview. Talk to me a bit about your project, if it's still the title Blood, Gold, and Honey, and where that title comes from. The title comes from a process I went through of culling poems that I had written on the street as part of what's sometimes called a poem store or writing on-the-spot poems. But for the last couple of years, um, a big part of the way that I've been making my living is setting up a typewriter at farmer's markets and festivals with a sign that says, Poems for Sale, Name Your Subject, Name Your Price. And initially, I wasn't documenting the poems. So somebody would come and say, I want a poem about kayaks or kittens or grief or death. And I would write something within a few minutes, and I would read it to them. And they would give me whatever they wanted in exchange. And often that was money, but not always. And I would just kind of let it go into the universe. And then at a certain point, I started to record the poems um, just by taking a snapshot of them. So in the winter of sort of 2014, 2015, I started to look through all these poems that I'd written for people. And, you know, I often recycle images in the poems for people. And I started to pick out the best lines and I noticed that three images that I constantly returned to were blood, gold, and honey. And those were the words that I love to use. And the colors and the smells and the textures that blood and gold and honey evoke for me just feel incredibly resonant. So I think by sort of December 2014, I knew that I wanted to write a book a collection called Blood, Gold, and Honey. And I had no idea what shape it would take. And it slowly began as just a single poem with a few different cards. I don't remember how it became a tarot set. And then within a few months after that, it became a chapbook, and I'd had 22 poems written. And now it's um, going to be, hopefully, my first full-length collection of poems. Would you share uh, an example, or should I, in some tradition, pick one of the ones that you've presented? That would be lovely. Okay, I'm just going to reach that one. So this card is called Boy of Blood. And each of the cards has one short poem that is a description of the image, And then another short associated poem, which is a ritual for the reader to complete or not as they see fit. 
boy of blood. Black baby for whom the home planet has orbited but once. A mother's son, flying child in a winged birth, surfing the wild and whipped wind, forgetting how solidly his feet can find the earth. Hollow bones grow long and fill with the marrow of a juicy life. Herkimer diamonds in his hands. His dream forms the purpose of the pumping heart. And then this is the associated ritual and rite. Play a drinking game with the angels. Take a shot of liquid god particles each time the earth quakes and multitudes of dark peoples rise from the molten core, buried by the weight of history. Straight-jacketed by suffering, their bodies longing for oxygen on street corners, holding cardboard signs that read, will work for air, midnight eyes brewing. Will work for air. This card was very much inspired by Black Lives Matter. Mm -hmm. And the card describing the boy of blood is about a young black man and hoping and wanting an opportunity for a, this young black man and all young black men to be able to live a life of freedom and liberation and what could be possible in a different world. You say that you hope ultimately to embody the writing and co-creation with the audience. How will that look? What does that mean to you? How will you know you've accomplished that? A lot of that desire to co-create with an audience comes from my experience of writing poems on the spot for people. So while I am the one writing the poem, the inspiration comes from them, the subject comes from them, the emotion, the experience, and I do really believe it's co-creation because I wouldn't have been able to write even Blood, Gold, and Honey. I couldn't have written this without the hundreds of people who took a gamble and said, I'm going to get this woman to write a poem for me. And then when the deck is complete, I'm hoping that, it, again, it is a co-creation because the poems will, if somebody buys the deck and chooses to use it as a tarot deck or to pull a card for inspiration or contemplation, that they're continuing to create the story of each poem. They'll be embodying it, and the meaning that they draw from it will be theirs. Um, I had this really incredible experience where I, even though I haven't written too many of the cards, I will offer a tarot reading from my deck, Blood, oh. Gold, and Honey, to somebody so they can pull three cards for the past, present, and future and I'll read them directly to this person, you know, in front of an audience of however many people. And this incredible thing happened where a young man who got a reading from me pulled a card, and it's probably the most disturbing card that I have written thus far. And the ritual describes you know, or commands, really, the reader to 
find a fox kit, you know, a, a little baby fox, and to slaughter it and to prepare it ritually and to consume it while the fox's mother is looking for it. And it's a really disturbing card, <laughs> which is fine. I'm, you know, I'm proud of being able to. I'm, I, I think it's important for me as a writer to be able to embrace the shadow. But the man who pulled this card had a really strong reaction to it. And I had an opportunity for him to tell me his story. And he said that he had just finished a master's program where he was studying the relationship between a certain type of tree and a certain type of fungi. And so at the beginning of his two-year program, he planted 60 or 80 trees, and he took care of them for two years, and he studied them, but he really communed with them, and he connected to them. And at the end of the two years, he had to dig them up and destroy them as part of his studies. And it was incredible, the relationship between what he had experienced and what was really on his mind and the card that he had pulled that I had written, which was about destroying something beautiful and innocent and pure and something that you love because it's part of the greater purpose. The state of our world right now in all the different ways that people are feeling. Do you hope, and if so, what do you hope might be possible for someone to get from reading your work? What might change for someone, do you hope? There are almost tears in my eyes at the thought that something could change for someone because of my work in this world that we find ourselves in. I know that part of my response to the election and everything that's been happening since then has been to numb out a little bit. It's not possible for me to feel everything that I need and want to feel and still get up and go to work in the morning. And so my hope is that somebody could read my work and feel something. Feel something in a place that they didn't know could still feel. A place that they felt might have been dead for a long time. And that they could feel an incredible range of emotion that they could feel sorrow, love, gratitude, wonder, anger. That's what I hope for. And maybe because that's what I most need right now, too. Now we'll hear a selection from a Froze's live reading. Your grief is not a muddy puddle. You cannot jump over it. 
Your grief is not a riptide. It will not pull you under. Your grief is not a stepchild. You may not forget her. Your grief is not a challenge or a quest or even a compass. Your grief is the layer of leaves coating the forest floor, constantly underfoot, cracking with the pressure exerted by your souls, wanting to become one with the earth again. Your grief has a life cycle. It is incubated, it is born, it grows and learns to speak and seems to have a mind belonging only to it. It doesn't care whether you are tired or meeting a deadline or falling in love. When it is hungry, you must feed it. What does your grief like to eat? It craves remembrance. Take your grief to the last body of water you sat by with your dead beloved and cry, cry, cry. Repeat her name, repeatedly. Chant it to the rhythm of your own heartbeat. Drop the pitch so low and speed up the rate so much until her name is the buzzing of a hundred hives of angry bees despairing at the death of the mortal world. Your grief loves to eat dance, too. The dance of words in a poem the dance of emotional striptease, slowly, with aching desire, peeling a glove of concealment or a feather boa of misdirection from the very plain, very honest animal body of the soul. And of course, the dance of the body itself, when it is cloaked only in your grief and lies on the honey wood floor of the dance studio, weeping and yet still moving, still rolling and arching and feeling the varied threads of the music holding you together. Your grief is a crying baby, a starving child. When it is not fed, the world cannot roll along easily in its orbit. You can try to ignore it. Try to turn the volume up on the dance hits that advocate for forgetting. Try to kiss pale eyes goodnight and close them to seeing. But your grief wants you to collect those leaves from the forest floor wants you to daily turn the compost bin with a pitchfork, mixed with watermelon rinds and tea bags and coffee grounds, wants you to know what season in your life it is, 
so that you don't get fed up trying to grow wildflowers in an impoverished earth. So part of engaging in this conversation between the world out there and the world in this room and the world within, um, for me, has been trying to find the emotions. Well, not trying to find, they're, they're very much there, just, but the emotions that get us to act in the world and this understanding that like we're, we're not going to march down the street or we're not going to fight against injustice if we don't feel personally, emotionally invested and connected. And so um, at a cer certain point last summer, when I was uh, reading about and hearing about Standing Rock from afar, I um, actually was invited by an artist friend of mine, Alia Gupta. She's an amazing visual artist and does these incredible installations. And she said, I want you to come to my studio. I've been working on some stuff and I'm doing a show in a couple months. And if you are into it, I want you to write something, write a poem, and then we can put it up on the wall of the gallery. And she was doing all this amazing work on water and oceans and waterfalls. And, and I was so taken with it that I ended up writing this whole chapbook and not just the one poem, but I was thinking about Standing Rock a lot at the time. And I was thinking about Flint, Michigan, and just from that to Black Lives Matter and, you know, not being able to breathe. Like, I can't breathe, you know, just our basic access to the elements, to air, to water, are being restricted, which is just heartbreaking. So I wrote Body of Water um, in response to some of that. I'll just read part of it tonight. Water. It drips in your thoracic cavity and wears away the scar tissue that has built up over years of loss and fuckery. The aches and the ecstasies, the grace and the tragedy. Water. It drips and drips until there is a small hole scooped from the soft, fertile earth of your heart, and you can place your treasure there inconsequential as it is to the rest of the cosmos, and carefully cover it with compost from the carcasses of your lost loves. To grow new life there. You prayed for your heart to be as infinite as the ocean, dreamed of it, ached for it to be boundless and bold, to move with the simple tug of the moon. Really, you were asking for another universe, one parallel to us, where we find living and loving all the ones we miss, where loss is never incidental. So you climbed heroically into your tiny boat, and you rowed until your palms were bloody, and your arms were illuminated from a fire starting deep in your bones, beneath your biceps. And you rode, and you rode, 
and you wrote and you wrote and you rode and you rode and you did this. You did this until you dropped your proud little paddles and lost everything that had once made you yourself. And you received everything you asked for and more because the small smooth stone that was you was dropped into the middle of this body of water and made no noise, no ripples worthy of mention in all the fierce kinetic energy. And it sank, sank, sank. Even though you felt the water would save you from gravity, you thought the ocean would cradle you your brain believed that the buoyancy of your brave heart would carry you across the horizon into a new land with new ground and new laws of physics. And then you put your faith in the universe to constellate your way, for the pull of Pluto and Polaris to guide you, for the Perseid meteor shower to light the sky in a rain of fire and grant you all your wishes. And you kept going, you kept. You kept, you kept. You've also been lovely. Thank you so much. Sound Pages is a Jack Straw production. The 2017 curator of this program is Jordan Imani Keith. This episode of Sound Pages was produced by Alyssa Keen and Daniel Gunther. Recording engineers are Daniel Gunther, Joel Maddox, and Tom Stiles. Narrator is Alyssa Keene. And executive director of Jack Straw Cultural Center is Joan Rabinowitz. Theme music by the Steve Griggs Ensemble, produced through the Jack Straw Artist Support Program. The Jack Straw Writers Program is made possible with support from the City of Seattle Office of Arts and Culture, Four Culture King County Lodging Tax Fund, the Washington State Arts Commission, the National Endowment for the Arts, Arts Fund, and individual contributors. All of the writers heard in this series are published in the Jack Straw Writers Anthology, available for purchase and featured online at jackstraw.org. Thank you for listening. <laughs>